seated. You know, as, uh, as we consider all that's going on around us in the world today, and there's a lot going on. I mean, every time that I wake in the morning and look at some of the reports, it's uh, not shocking. You know, Jesus said we can expect these things to happen. However, it's not easy, is it? We, we see destruction, we see war, we see death, we see pain, we see sorrow, we see human suffering, and it's, it's never, ever easy. And today, as, you know, I woke up and checked in some of my uh, news reports, and things are not slowing down in the Middle East, you know that. Uh, there's other warships in the area now from China. The U.S. is engaged, of course, as you know. Uh, there's war front in Gaza and in the north near Lebanon, and uh, they're saying that it, it appears as though there's going to be another one on the Syrian side. So it's, you know, Israel's being surrounded, and, and the Bible tells us that in the last days, Jerusalem shall be a burdensome stone. In other words, did you ever get a stone in your shoe and walk on it? Yeah, that, that's, that's painful. It's an irritant, and... The scriptures tell us that Jerusalem will be an irritant to the nations around them and to the world at large. But anyhow, the reason I bring that up, and, and it's really important that in, in the days in which we live, that we have a foundation upon which we can stand. And that foundation is Jesus Christ, and he is the only one that can carry us through times such as this. And I do know that there's many people that live in fear. But God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. And this is very important for, for us as Christians to understand because, you know, fear is not of God. We're called to trust. Trust the Lord with all our heart. Lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways acknowledge him and he will direct our paths. You know, if you belong to Jesus, then, then praise God you belong to Jesus. Amen. He's got you right there in the palm of his hand, and he tells us that no one can pluck you out of his hand, and no one can pluck you out of his Father's hand. It's two great hands to be held in, isn't it? But there's many, many people in the world, and maybe some here today or maybe online later, that are quite afraid of what's taking place. And believe me, I don't want to invite any of this stuff into my life. I don't like pain any more than you do, but, you know, in spite of that, we have a God that we can trust, regardless of what takes place. If you belong to Jesus, you've got a place waiting for you in heaven, and I have a place waiting for me in heaven. Yet with all the scrambling that's going on in the world these days, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, and and, and workplaces and people are afraid, you know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Well, I know this, and we sang about it. Jesus is coming back. Amen. But he's coming back for those that belong to him. Amen. Those that are born again, those that are born of the Spirit of God. He said, I'm going to take you out of this. I'm grateful for that promise, aren't you? Amen. And it's a promise. You can count on it. Why? Because Jesus said it's so. The world needs to know that there is a Savior that loves them. 
And my prayer is that he would use me, he would use us as, as his people to deliver that message of hope, the message of promise, the message of a certainty of a future that transcends all of this. And it's a glorious future God has given us. And we can look forward to that. And I believe it's important that whenever we gather together, that we, we focus in on, number one, who our Savior is and bring glory to his holy name, but also to invite people to respond to the love that Jesus has for them. And, you know, I've shared this with you before. You know, before I came to Christ, there were many days that I was afraid because I didn't know, and this is 18 years old in high school, and I thought about my, my future, and the questions that were going through my mind is, am I going to go to heaven or am I going to go to hell? And I didn't know, because nobody ever told me. Many led me to believe that, well, but, but because I've done more good than bad, I, hey, you've got a place in heaven. But God showed me different. My sin needs to be dealt with. And Jesus is the only one that has dealt with my sin and your sin. And certainly he isn't going to allow me to drag my sin into heaven. Heaven's a perfect place. It's undefiled. But what he does allow and invite is for every single person that he has created to be able to come to him and say, I need my sin dealt with. Because and the realization is I've got no future here apart from Jesus, and I don't. This world is going to go away. Heaven and earth shall pass away, Jesus said, but my word will never pass away. So if, if you're presently living in some form of fear for what's taking place, or some place of doubt, as I was, didn't know where I was going if I were to die. If you live in that place, then I know this, that Jesus wants to bring you to a place of absolute certainty now and today. The Bible says, if today you hear his voice, harden not your heart against him. You see, his voice is a loving voice. His voice is a gentle voice. His voice is a kind voice. It's a voice that beckons to sinful mankind, come to me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, and I want to give you rest. And we can have rest in trying times, can't we? Amen. Why? Because Jesus gives us rest. And my Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And my Jesus is coming back again to bring his bride, those that have trusted in him, home. And all the stuff that's going to take place on this earth throughout the Great Tribulation period, we're not going to be part of that. And it's heartbreaking to me to know that there will be people on this earth that have rejected the Son of God and will literally go through hell on earth 
was painful to think about. But you know what? It doesn't have to be you. It doesn't have to be you. And all you need to do is say yes to Jesus and, and come to him on his terms. And so many people want to come to Jesus on their terms. You know, thinking that, well, yeah, the, the, this is the Bible, this is the, you call it God's word, but I got my own way. I've got my own ideas. You know what? I'm going to ask you to scratch those ideas right now and focus in on what Jesus did for you and how to know that you can be saved and forgiven of your sin. That's key. That is so incredibly important. And a decision that you make for Christ is an eternal decision. And on the other hand, a decision that you don't make for Christ is also an eternal decision. One is to salvation, and one is to condemnation. Would you like to come to Jesus for salvation today? Pray with me, please. And Lord, I come to you, and Lord, I'm, I'm fearful. I'm uncertain of my future. But I also know that you love me, and you came to save me. And I bring my heart to you right now and express my desire to be saved. You invite me to bring my sin to you to be forgiven. And I ask you, Jesus, please, please forgive me of all of my sin. I believe that when you came to this earth, you came to lay your life down on a cross to die, to pour out your blood that my sins could be forgiven and washed away, never to be brought up again. So I bring that to you now. Cleanse me, forgive me, save me. And I do believe that when you went to the tomb, you rose again on the third day, and that is my promise that you've given me of eternal life because I now belong to you. Increase my faith. Increase my trust. Help me to tell others about you, that they too would experience your love and your salvation. And help me to turn away from the things that I know are harmful to me because they're not of your will. And help me to learn of your ways, that I might learn of you and learn more fully the grace and love that you have for me. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought that might be a, an appropriate place to start today. Anyhow, we are in Acts chapter 20. Last week we talked about, we departed just for a week to talk about the reassuring hope that we have in Jesus, the, the soon return of Jesus. Today we're back in Acts chapter 20, and we're going to be studying verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> and the title of today's message, as you can see, is We All Need Fellowship. We need it. We need each other. And we really won't get to that aspect until towards the end of the message, but we're going to start in verse 1. And let's read verses 1 through 12. And, and here's what, what the scriptures say. After the uproar was ceased, this is the uproar in Ephesus that we just studied, Paul called unto him the disciples, and I love this, he embraced them. 
And he departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, that means encouragement, he came to Greece. And there abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him, as he was about to sail into Syria, that is Antioch of Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanied him and into Asia, Sopater of Berea and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy of, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. And we, this is now the Apostle Luke speaking, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto Troas in five days where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber, where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till the break of day, he departed. And they brought the young man alive and were not a little comforted. Great comfort, of course. So after this uproar in, in Ephesus where, remember, this, uh, this silversmith called Demetrius, he was fashioning this, the statues of this goddess Diana, sold them for profit. After the uproar, Paul decided, well, it's time to move on, for he had been at Ephesus for about three years. And God was doing a mighty work there. And Ephesus, if you remember, was highly idolatrous, an occultic, drenched city. But that city, because of the power of the gospel, it became influenced by the power of the gospel. And many people were coming to Jesus Christ for salvation. And as we know, a church was formed there a church that Paul would later write in the epistle to the Ephesians. Well, today's verses tell us of, of Paul's travels from Ephesus to Macedonia and then to Troas. And we could kind of gloss over these verses, I, I suppose, but I'm sure that, you know, as we read these things, I know the Holy Spirit has put them in there so that we can learn something. He's going to speak something to us in these 12 verses. Paul had said in the previous chapter, verses 21 and 22, he said, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in his spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem. That was his heart, saying, after these, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. So Paul had a plan. He wanted to go to Jerusalem, wanted to go to Rome, and he sent two ahead of him to go. So after three years of ministry there, he sensed, well, it's time to move on. The need for him in this church that had been established, he sensed, well, the work has been done that I need to do. I'm going to leave it in the hands of others, and I'm going to go to new challenges and to a new setting. And as I mentioned, his ultimate goal was to go to Jerusalem, to celebrate the Passover, but also, as the church in Ephesus and the surrounding churches were very generous, he wanted to bring a gift 
to the Jewish Christians there who were enduring economic hard times. And he wanted to bring this gift from the Gentile churches in order to bless them and to show them how God is saving Gentiles and giving them a heart of love for the other churches within the body of Christ. So he planned to pass through Macedonia. He planned to go through Achaia before going to Jerusalem and passed through various other cities on his way with the intent of visiting them, encouraging them, strengthening them, places like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And we as a body, we need strengthening, don't we? We need encouragement. And part of being together in fellowship is to encourage one another. And when we encourage one another, what happens? We're strengthened together as the body of Christ, aren't we? So that when we depart this building, walk out those doors, we're better prepared than when we went in. And this is what Paul was doing. So after this uproar in Ephesus, it was time for a group hug. When Paul was ready to leave, it tells us here in verse 20 that the disciples were called together and he embraced them. And then he was off to Greece, namely the city of Corinth. And while he was in Corinth, we don't know this from this scripture, but while he was there, he wrote the letter to the church of Rome. Now, we see in verse 3, there was a group of Jews that laid wait for him. And when you see those two words, laid wait, well, understand it's not the welcome wagon. They're waiting for him. It means there is a plot against him. So before, before boarding this ship to Antioch of Syria, here comes these Jews that were awaiting him, laying, laying in wait for him, the persecutors, and it's a plot by them. They wanted to kill him on the ship. So he became aware of this plot, and when Paul the apostle found out, he abandoned the plan to sail but to go by land, north to Greece, across Turkey, and his plan was still to make it to Jerusalem in time for the Passover. But because of this, that hope, that plan was dashed. We see the names of those that accompanied him in verse 4. I'm not going to read those again. But they went on ahead, planning to meet Paul and Troas. And notice the personal pronoun known in verse 5, the pronoun us. It means that the Apostle Luke has joined them again, and we see also in verse 6 the word we, it's Luke speaking. So after the Passover was over, then Paul, Silas, and Luke would sail on to Troas. But we have an application here too. You know, Paul had this incredible plan in his mind. This is what I want to do. I believe this is where God is sending me. But you know what? Things don't always go as we plan, do they? And sometimes it's hard. A great goal, a great plan is a wonderful thing to have. There's nothing wrong with that. But then somehow, our plans can get changed. Has that ever happened to any of you? You got something, you got a plan, this is what I'm going to do. Next I'm going there, I'm going to do this, and all of a sudden, wait a minute. It all fell apart. But the question is, did it fall apart or is God putting it together? He's putting it together according to his will. But it can be disappointing, can it? Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace 
and not of evil to give you an expected end. Now, the word thoughts, it's interesting. It's the Greek word, and you're going to be tested on this later. <laughs> not really. It's the Greek word, maha shabah, which means plans or intentions that arise from our thought processes. And they are, according to Jeremiah, they are thoughts that are of peace and not of evil. In other words, even though our plans may change, God says, look, listen, my plans are always best. And they really are. Maybe it doesn't seem like it at the time. However, Romans 8.28 says, For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. So when our plans change to God's plans, which they should, if we certainly allow God to quote-unquote intervene, he's not intervening, but we allow him access to our plans, and God, they're yours. He said they're going to work together for your good because you love me. And you're called according to my purpose, and not necessarily your purpose, but I pray that my purpose would be his purpose. Don't you pray that too? Yeah. And for the Apostle Paul, his plans seem to be perfect. Yes, I'm going to take this ship. I'm going to sail to Jerusalem just in time for the Passover. And then from there, I'm going to Rome. I'm sure he was thrilled. He was excited. But God had other plans. His, Paul's plans didn't come together. And you know, family, our plans are never to be so rigid or unyielding that we leave no room even for God to change them if he chooses to do so. So every plan in our lives should include God willing. God willing. It's biblical. James said this in chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. He said, come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go there to such and such a city. It sounds like Paul, doesn't it? Spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Isn't that true? For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or do that. It's one thing for us to say, and when we begin to formulate certain plans or ideas, it's one thing to say and voice these words, God willing. Those are easy words, aren't they? And we can say them very casually, we can say them very flippantly, but what's difficult sometimes is the heart change that's necessary for us to really mean God willing. In other words, I'm surrendering my plan to you when sometimes we just want to hang on to it, don't we? And we can even kid ourselves thinking, God, I know this is what you want from me. I know this is what you want for me. But a surrendered heart says, God, this is in my heart, but if it's not in your heart, I don't want it. But when I'm in that kind of mindset, you know, where I want to hang on to to what I want to do, even though I say, God willing... I need to realize there's something wrong with any plan. I don't give God the freedom to change. So if I'm so invested in a plan that I won't give God the freedom to change it, it's a sign that I'm more interested in my will than God's will. Maybe you've been there. I've been there. What do you do? If you're there, if you have been there, if you're going to be there, what do you do? Well, 
take a step back and pray. Ask God to adjust your heart. <laughs> That's what's needful, isn't it? God, fix my heart. Because my heart isn't in line with your heart right now, and I need the two to come together in such a perfect and wonderful way. Put the situation back in God's hands and surrender it, knowing there's nothing better for my life than God's will to be accomplished. Even when it seems like there's nothing that can be better than the plan I came up with and the plan I'm pursuing, it's always best to say, God, your will. And I'm saying this with my mouth, but please change my heart too. Your will be done. And over time, what do you find? If your heart is surrendered, you find over time that, you know what? And this is, these are easy, true words. God, you're right. <laughs> He's always right. But sometimes we, we get, get, it takes a little bit to get there, doesn't it? We've got this great plan formulated and it's falling apart and God's going to get something better. And then we look back in the rearview mirror and say, you know, thank you, Lord. You were right all along. Amen. Amen. He's right all along. So if you're here this morning and maybe there's something going on in your life where you feel deeply disappointed because something didn't happen or isn't happening according to your plan, remember the vast superiority of God's plan to your plan. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. It's a good thing. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, we're familiar with this passage. And it's a good passage to read and to meditate on and, and ask God to give me that surrendered heart so we can have God's perspective, God's direction, our agreement with God's plan for our lives. We say, okay, it's all yours. Well, let's get back to verse 4 of chapter 20, where Paul gives us, or Luke gives the names of these men that accompany him to Jerusalem. They were representatives of the churches that Paul ministered to. And two of the names give us a glimpse of the broad diversity among them. Look at two of them, Aristarchus and Secundus. They came from the church at Thessalonica. Aristarchus's name associated with nobility, aristocrat, okay? This is the root. He came from nobility, someone from the upper echelon of society. So, okay, he had a different kind of upbringing. Secundus, the name means, in Latin, it's the, it's the name for second. It could be primus, number one, secundus, number two. He was a slave. The Roman Empire was made up of six million slaves. And it was nothing for a household to own a slave or several slaves. And in order to dehumanize the slave, they were given a number. So Secundus was given a number two, or second. So what this speaks to me is that Paul the Apostle, he had a very, very varied team here that ministered with him. Now as believers, we're all united, and praise God, we are all equal in the body of Christ. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the kingdom of God, because it operates completely differently than the rest of the entire world. Because this is God's way. And the kingdom of God levels the playing field for all of us. 
We have something in common. We're all sinners. Level. (laughs) We're leveled out. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then we have God's grace, don't we? His grace, His unmerited favor, His unconditional love for us. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. This reminds us here that the kingdom of God operates fairly and evenly. And no one is excluded from having influence or importance in the kingdom of God based on nationality, race, social status, income, none of those things. Galatians say it doesn't matter. God says it doesn't matter. We belong to the body of Christ. But you and I know it's counterintuitive to the world's processes, isn't it? But what a great mix in the body of Christ. What a great mix in the early church. And we know that God is not a respecter of persons. He loves us all the same. He loves me. He loves you. You know, he he loves all those folks that are doing harm in the Middle East right now. That's hard for me. Because I want to get angry. I want to say, God, get them. But God's heart is, I want to get them. I want to save them. Because I made them. And I love them, and they're so misguided. They're so deceived into thinking that they can operate somehow in this way apart from me. Philippians 2, verse 3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. In lowliness of mind. Well, what does this mean? First, it's contrary to the attitude of the world and contrary to our selfish desires. It, It speaks of humility. And it stands in the way of pride and self-importance. Well, how can we, <clears throat> excuse me, how can we even attempt to conform to this command, to esteem others higher than ourselves? Well, it's, it's to examine ourselves according to truth, according to the Word of God, and, and recognize who we really are apart from Christ. And if you and I come to this realization that we're truly wretched, and that our hearts are truly deceitful and desperately wicked, if we look at ourselves in the magnitude of the grace and the mercy of our God, and if we understand how much we've been forgiven, it would change our attitude toward others. And it would be, you know, I'd be lying to you if I said, well, yeah, I I believe my heart's truly wicked and wretched. I believe I've been forgiven so much that I can love others even though they do things that I can't stand. But I can't say that. So I have to confess that in that regard, I'm a respecter of persons. And I don't want to be. But it takes a great act of humility, doesn't it? And to realize... God, in spite of my sin, you love me. My transgressions are too great for me to number. But God knows every one. And he still loves me. And he still forgave me. 
And if that's the case, who am I not to forgive others? Who am I? If we consider that the wages of our sin is death, but Jesus saved me in spite of me, how much differently would we look at others? Paul described his heart of service in Acts 20, verse 19. He said, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears. In 1 Peter 5, 5, Peter said this, Yea, all of you, be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then in, uh, I've got a verse repeated here. You don't need to repeat that. We, we know what it is. But, you know, esteeming others better than ourselves is the product of, I mean, true humility. And we can paint a humble picture, can't we? But you, you see, when we paint a humble picture, what we're really saying is, I'm prideful. I got humility. I'm a humble guy. Right? But you, not so much. That's pride, isn't it? True humility says we have a keen sense of our own faults. It says we see the corruption in our own hearts. It, it says that, yes, I have impure motives. I have anger. I have bitterness. I have faithlessness. It says we see ourselves how we truly are because God shows us our hearts. And with this attitude, we realize we can only see the outward conduct and behavior of others while we see what's in here. Because God sees it, and God convicts us, God shows us. And conviction is a beautiful thing if we respond accordingly, right? And what's in another person's heart, you know, we think we can know, right? Oh, I, I know what you got going on in there. But unless you are the Word of God, you don't know. For the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Amen. And it divides asunder bone from marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Amen. We don't know. It's God's business. It's God's business. And isn't it sometimes difficult to just, somebody you got a difficult time with or somebody's hurt you or whatever it might be, say, you know, we want to sometimes, I can't speak for us, I can speak for me. I want to take matters into my hands. And God would say, if you put it in your hands, you're taking it out of mine. Dan, why don't you just pray? Pray for that person and ask that you would have the right heart. Okay, Lord. I'll do it. <laughs> but you know I don't want to. But I have to. It's not easy. It's difficult. Do you know who the only one is that would truly esteem himself greater than another that could? I mean, it. it's Jesus. Because there was nothing that defiled him. There was no sin, not a single trace of evil. He's God the Son. He's the Son of God. So what did he do? The only one that was, is worthy to esteem himself above another, he took the role of a servant, didn't he? Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He washed feet. He washed Judas's feet. 
knowing Judas was going to betray him. Can you imagine now? I can put myself in his place. Washing the feet of the disciples. Wash, 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 wash. Judas. <laughs> uh-uh. No. He washed Judas' feet. Gave him an opportunity to repent, which Judas never did. Well, back to Acts chapter 20. Verse 6 tells us that they sailed to Philippi and arrived in Troas in five days and stayed there seven days. In verse 6, you can read this again, verses 6 and 7. And we, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached to them ready to be de depart on the morrow and continued his speech until midnight. They met on the first day of the week, Sunday. Some will try to bring you under the law, and they'll do it by trying to tell you you're making a big mistake that you ought to worship on Saturday, the Sabbath. But here we see the early church met on Sunday. 1 Corinthians 16.2 6, says, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. You see, like every other part of the law of Moses, Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath law for us as Christians. And Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 17. He said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill them. Now, what does this mean? means we better trust in Jesus because we can't fulfill the law, can we? And I know people that have departed from biblical Christianity and said, I'm going to now follow the law of Moses. And I'm not exaggerating this. I'm going to follow the law of Moses. And I would like to say after 10 minutes, how are you doing? How are you doing? When we take the law of Moses and we write it upon our heart and we see, well, the intent of the law of Moses is really a heart matter, isn't it? Hence, Jesus in the Beatitudes showed us it's really a matter of the heart. So by trusting in Jesus as the one that he'll fulfill the law, I can come to him and I can say, I belong to you. You're in my heart, I'm in your heart. Your righteousness is now my righteousness. I've been forgiven, and therefore, the law in my life has been fulfilled by Jesus. How important it is that we trust in Jesus. Amen? Amen. And Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath in providing us a, a perfect spiritual rest, of which the physical Sabbath was only a type. It means that you can meet any day of the week that you wish. Just don't put people in bondage over Saturday or Sunday or any other day. Mark 2, verses 27 and 28 says, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And what he's saying here, don't you see that the Sabbath was to be a blessing to benefit people? And people don't exist for the Sabbath day. The Sabbath for the blessing of the people. Hebrews 4, verses 9 through 11 so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Praise God for that. We have a Sabbath rest, and that's Jesus. For the one who has entered into his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall 
through following the same example of disobedience. The writer saying Jesus is our Sabbath. We're to enter into our rest in him. Are you resting in Jesus today? As stirred as your heart could be, you can rest, you can find your rest in Jesus. So what day ought we to worship? Well, the early church worshiped on Sundays. In Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17 says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect to a holy day or the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are just a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man judge you. And I respect the convictions of people that say, I worship on Saturdays, but I can't accept the condemnation of someone that says, you must, or else. Paul said, let no man judge you in these things. Not about worshiping on a given day, rather than obeying the principle that God lays out for us. And all the things that Paul mentioned in that verse, he said, they're a shadow of things to come. And that's the reality of the body of Christ. So let's continue on in verses 8 through 12 once again. And there were many lights, or candles, that's what they used, many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat a, in a window a certain young man named Eutychus being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him, said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till the break of day, he departed. And he brought the young man alive, brought the young man alive, and were not a little comforted. So here they are. They're in this, this wonderful worship service. They came together in fellowship in this upper room. They came to partake of the Lord's Supper together and to hear the teaching of the Word of God. Now, this service more than likely took place in the evening. You see, in that culture, Sunday was not a day off. The early church was largely made up of slaves who worked every day. They never got a day off. So as they finished their work day, they would go home and get ready to go to church service that evening. Paul's preaching, as it tells here, was long. He preached until midnight. And the purpose, I believe, is that he knows that he's going to be leaving the next morning and we'll never see them again. This is his last trip to Troas. So he wants to take this final time to encourage them, to build them up in the faith. And there seems to be a sense of urgency on Paul's part. And the word that's used here to describe his preaching is Dialegomai, it's another Greek word, includes both sharing of the scriptures and like we do, we teach the word of God, but also a time of discourse and discussion. And it went on for hours. There's a lot of candles in the room as well as a lot of people. It's crowded, so the oxygen level in the room is probably beginning to drop off some. And this young man, his name is Eutychus, we got kind of sleepy, I think I'm going to go sit in this windowsill, get a little bit of fresh air so I can stay awake. And he sat there three stories up. No glass, just an opening. By the way, that's why we have fake windows in here. <laughs> just in case you don't fall out. 
And the scriptures are pretty specific here. It says that he fell into a deep sleep. He, he sunk down. He began to slump down as he slept. Sometimes people think I can't see you from up here. <laughs> but there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Because I know, and I do this every night, I slump down. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that's Eutychus. There he is. He, he's sitting on the windowsill, and next thing you know, he's gone. In a moment, Eutychus disappeared from sight. The last place you'd want to be when you get sleepy like Eutychus is sitting on a third floor windowsill. One second he's here, next instant he's gone, he's lying on the ground. Dr. Luke, he pronounced him dead. And this, of course, as you might expect, would interrupt Paul's sermon. <laughs> so what he did, well, he, he went down and laid his body on the boy's body. And he had a certain expectation that God would do something supernatural. Why? Because they were there in God's name. He was sharing God's word. And I'm grateful for this passage. It, it's really amazing. Paul announced that the boy now lived. And it's like, after he finished that, I mean, he, he lays his, his body down on the boy. The boy comes to life. And it's like, I'm just going to keep on going. It was just a minor interruption. No big deal. Lay my life down on him. He's back. He's alive. He's, he's doing fine. And then it tells us in verses 11 and 12 that he came up again. They broke bread and talked until the break of day. You might ask, why did the Holy Spirit see fit to include this in the Bible? Well, God knows that the ministry that Paul was in was very, very difficult at times. It was a season in his life to take this opportunity to express the resurrection power through Paul into the boy. But not only for the boy, but for the church. God is alive. God is well. God is moving powerfully through the word of God. And it wasn't Paul doing the work. It was God doing the work. But certainly an encouragement to Paul between him and God in terms of his faithfulness in doing what God has called him to do. We're called to be faithful. God, give us faithful men, the scriptures say. And Paul was faithful. And the people, while well, they witnessed this, they saw the power of God's presence. And Paul, I'm sure, expected nothing more than for God to move, and God did. God moved powerfully here. With that, I want to talk about fellowship just for a couple of minutes. The passage from one end to another speaks of the importance of fellowship. Not only what it means to us, but what it means to other people. You see, there's fellowship mentioned in, in verse 1, that Paul embraced these Ephesian Christians before he left. He wanted to embrace this church before he left. And then we're told about some of the individuals that he traveled with and his fellowship with them. You see, fellowship for the Apostle Paul was so incredibly important. And we're also told at the end of this section, after this resurrection of Eutychus, that Paul continued the rest of the night in fellowship. It, it could have been, and probably was, you know, put yourself in 
Paul's sandals or in the sandals of those that are observing all this. I mean, they're sitting, listening to the word of God. God's spirit is moving. Eutychus falls down. Paul lays on him. He comes back to life. Now, this is an emotionally charged event, isn't it? It's like, whoo. And yet, what did he do? He continued on. I'm thinking, I probably would have called it quits. I'm emotionally drained. Time to go home, folks. But no, he continued on in preparation because he needed the strengthening of the body. He needed the fellowship, preparation for his next day's journey. And it tells that only Don brought an end to this meeting. Not you, Don. Um, but Don, the dawn of day. <laughs> and when you think about the Apostle Paul, when you think about his history, you realize ministry was not easy for him. Number one, an enormous responsibility, not only planting churches, but following up with these churches and building them up and strengthening them in the Holy Spirit and following up travel, 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 more travel, three missionary journeys, thousands of miles, and they weren't easy miles. It wasn't on a love boat. We're going to get to this toward the end of the book of Acts. In all of this, while Paul is dealing with chronic health issues, along the journey, there's heartbreak, there's persecution, there's riots, there's threats on his life. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. this won't be on the screen. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. I mean, that's his ministry life. But you see, in spite of all of those things, Christian fellowship meant more to him than the pain of the ministry. And it's like Dr. Luke wanted us to know that before Paul left Ephesus, that it was Paul's idea to call those disciples together, to embrace them. And as we continue on next week, should the Lord tarry into Acts, further in Acts chapter 20, we're going to see Paul's final farewell, his address to them. And I mean, it's just saturated with the beauty of truth and fellowship. But Luke wanted us to know that it was in Troas, Paul didn't just leave after the sermon, he stayed until dawn. And it's commonly believed that the Apostle Paul was at some point in his life previously married. Well, how do we know this? Well, Paul was a member before he came to Christ of the ruling body, the Sanhedrin. One of the requirements of being part of the Sanhedrin was to be married. And some speculate that his wife left him when he became a Christian. And all the stuff that he once held dear, he counted as loss including his family. And I'm not suggesting that you walk away from your family, but you know what? Jesus said, I've come as a sword not to give peace. And sometimes when we take a stand for Jesus and we commit our lives to Jesus, family matters get kind of mucky, can't they? Yeah. What do you do? You run back away from Jesus? You stay with him. 
and ask him to work in your family members to bring them to the place of salvation. This is so important. You know, sometimes it can be so easy for us to say, well, I'm done. Don't ever be done with somebody. By God's grace, pray for them. I'm glad Jesus didn't say, Dan, I'm done with you. Aren't you glad he didn't say that to you? Just pray for them. For Paul, the family of, of the church was more than family to him. There's a bond that's incredibly powerful and beautiful within the body of Christ. Why? Because we all belong to this body, body of believers, blood-purchased saints. We're bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that's more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ. Sometimes people say, well, my sin is way too great. You know what? It's not greater than the power of the blood of Jesus to forgive. So the family of God is important. And for some, and for, you know, for a variety of reasons, the church family is their only family because there's true deep relationships and fellowship. It's powerful. And it's important to realize this as Christians what gatherings like this, what meetings like this mean to people, and what your presence, your presence means to others in a room like this. God's presence, of course, is supreme. He is the one to receive all glory and praise. He is the Lord over all. But there is this power in being in a room like this, part of just being part of a church family, having a place to belong to like this. You know, Paul would write that, you know, the church is fitly joined together. It's something so precious and so beautiful that you just don't find anywhere else. Because, yes, we belong to Jesus, but we also belong to one another, don't we? And God can take lives from no matter what background, no matter what race, no matter what nationality, no matter what, and bring us together in this beautiful bond that we call the bond of love in the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that, don't ever, ever, please don't ever minimize your presence as, oh, you know what? I'm just another person. I'm just another person. No, no, don't ever say that. You are part of this incredible entity called the body of Christ. Amen. And you are important to Jesus. You are important to this body. You are important to one another. And maybe you don't know everybody here. I'd encourage you to try to get to know everybody here. But the fact is that you make up this family. And when you make up this family, it does something very good and special in our hearts. Your presence and uniqueness, uniqueness of your relationship with God in every relationship 
that you have is different from the relationship with God that others have. Yes, we're bonded together with the blood of Christ, but God knows you as only he can know you. And he brings us together in a very unique and wonderful, powerful way because of your unique relationship with Jesus Christ and the things that he has done in your life, the things he has freed you from, the things he's presently doing, and the things that he is doing. It's different than what he's freed me from, what he's doing in my life right now, and what he's doing in my life in the future. It's all different. Yet there's a a wonderful unity and uniqueness because God is putting all this together. And you know, he, he does a great job of it. This may not be the biggest church. I know it's not. But at least from my perspective, it's the sweetest. Amen. Maybe I'm being biased. <laughs> but, I, but I love you guys. <laughs> and you love me too. And you love each other. And this is the important thing. And you might come in with difficulties, as, as we all do. We go through tough weeks, don't we, sometimes? You might come in here with troubles on your heart. But I pray this, that you know that you're loved. First off, by him. And also by one another. I remember when I first became a Christian, there was a guy I barely knew. And I saw what was going on in this church. I was at Koinonia in East Rochester. I saw what was going on there. I said, this is really, really amazing stuff I see. And what I mean by that is there's, there's a love here that I can just feel. And I'm not saying love is a feeling, but you know, you know what it's like when you can sense it in, in, the, in the atmosphere in which you are. And I could just feel it. And I saw people hugging each other, and I thought, it's different for me. But I want that. And then there was a guy that was sitting in front of me that turned around, and he greeted me, and he said, hello, brother, what's your name? Brother? You're calling me brother? And I knew it wasn't a blood brother, obviously, but there was something there. When he called me brother, I knew that we were related. And when you come to Christ, you're instantly related to the family of God. And it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. That's why it's so important. We come in here with stuff, don't we? And regardless of what stuff we bring in, know that you're loved. And know that we love each other. And don't be afraid to express it. I'm not saying you have to use the word over and over and over again. But you can. But love is more than just a word. It's, it's a genuine. There's something genuine about it. And, and you know the difference between fake and genuine, don't you? Sure you do. My heart is this would be just a the most loving, sweetest, beautiful body. And I'm selfish because I want to be part of that, you know. I want it to be wonderful. And I pray that you do too. And you know, every week I, I marvel. I stand and look out and say, Lord, thank you. You brought somebody here today. You know, Jackie and I talk about that all the time. We'll elbow each other say, Dan people here today praise God praise God he's bringing his body together 
It's marvelous. I'm so grateful. You know, it's, it's your love for the Lord, your love for fellowship, your love for one another that brings you here. And your trial might be so heavy so that your faith is tried to the max. And then you can sit with others and, and you, you sense their love and you can be strengthened by their love and their faith than what God's doing in their life and you can be encouraged and strengthened. And if you did nothing else, your presence in the church is important to every one of us. Your presence. Why? Because we're navigating this life together. You know, we're in, the, we're in the same ship, so to speak, aren't we? We're in the ark of Jesus Christ. Right where Noah was. And whatever storms come your way, we're weathering them because of Jesus. And don't ever forget that we are in this together. Amen? Amen. We're in it together. I'm glad you're here. I thank the Lord for you. I thank him for your presence. And if you did nothing else, your presence means a lot. And I get it. You know, I get some people just aren't quite as outgoing as others. Some people kind of just want to slip in unnoticed and slip out unnoticed. <laughs> slippery. <laughs> we, who said slippery? They... <laughs> <laughs> Slippery saints, there's a new, a new term. <laughs> but that's okay. Because they're here. And whatever God is doing in the time that you're here is important. And you can carry it on out with you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, it tells in verse 11, and I know I'm going kind of long here too. 